Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Well, Helen Hall, thank you so much for making time to come on to the Cycling in Alignment podcast today. I'm delighted to be here. Honored. Thank you. And tell us where you are at the moment. Uh, well, I'm just outside London in uh, a little town called Amersham in Buckinghamshire, UK, England. Okay, very good. And so I came across you in a couple different places. Um, I've listened to all of Matt Walden's podcasts. Matt is a Czech instructor, and he's one of my mentors at the Czech Institute. And you guys did a two-part series on his pod, which sadly I think he's discontinued. Uh, I'm not sure oh, what. Oh, okay. I, I didn't so, know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, we have. We, we were having such a good matter that we couldn't stop. So he said that we will just continue this in part two, which we did, of course. And yeah. Matt's a dear friend of mine. Um, so I'm delighted that you found me through that that matter because that was fun. And it sounds like you guys had quite an interaction on a train ride many years ago, where he planted some seeds that eventually led to you making some pretty radical diet changes. Yeah. It, yes, he is solely responsible for me giving up on uh, everything to do with uh, trying to manage my carbohydrate intake uh, and just dispensing with it. <laughs> just, uh, just don't bother eating it, and and then you won't be pre-diabetic anymore. <laughs> so that was it. Was overnight, literally. Overnight, uh, I went from uh, a hypoglycemic attack or several on a daily basis, um, having complete panic attacks if I left the house without anything in my pocket. I had to have sugar with me at all times. This has been since the age of 11. Wow. Uh, and I tried everything. You know, the doctor told me um, slow release, low GI, uh, brown, whole grain, superfoods oh my goodness so much superfood so much money spent on superfoods mm. um and trying to do ironmans with superfoods uh and well to cut a long story short i stopped eating sugar just stopped <laughs> and that was it didn't have a hypo again uh and when i was called in for my next um it was it was like an annual uh it was a bit like a, a family joke you're being called in for your next, are you diabetic yet, uh, blood test. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I went in and, uh, and explained that I hadn't had a hypo and, and all my problems were solved. And it was so interesting because nobody even asked me how. That, <laughs> no, that's disturbing. Nobody, yeah, yeah. Nothing, no questions asked. Interesting, yes. Mm. Well... Hopefully, uh, that's not an indicator of how most people's experiences go. I mean, if a doctor is one to make you healthy and you come back and report that your health has improved normally, you would think they wouldn't want to investigate into that, right? But good for you for making... <laughs> You'd think. Yes, it's uh, in the defense of everybody who works in um, a, a GP's uh, surgery. Uh, they have 10 minutes... And uh, I demand five hours Mm -hmm. for my initial assessment. And uh, I've been reflecting on this um, for a while, actually. And and it's easy easy to poke um, 
and prod through the cages of somebody who was stuck behind them in a 10-minute window of trying to solve that person's problems, trying to figure out who to send them on to, um, how to help, if they can help. Uh, and, of course, it never takes 10 minutes. It always takes longer. And so they're always behind the drag curve. So I can imagine that perhaps on that day, uh, it got lost in the wash somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is it, that's probably exactly what happened. It wasn't that he was disinterested at all. It was it just didn't register because of the complete overload. And that's the problem. They're in complete overload. How does anything get done? We know that we can't learn when we're stressed. We know that we're probably less effective when we're stressed than mm-hmm. when we're not stressed. And so if we know that in certain compartments in our lives, it it is curious that we can't then apply it when we look outside of ourselves at other people's lives, existence, existences, um, job locations, and and just apply that same understanding. Uh, Yeah, we're not in a bit of a tangent there already. It's, it's It's an interesting thing. Uh, when my whole life is spent breaking free of labels and boxes uh, and um, compartmentalizing stuff uh, in order to be free to think and look at the bigger picture. But it takes time. (laughs) And nobody allows anybody any time. Everybody wants everything yesterday. That's very well said. Uh, this is something I've been reflecting a lot on in my own practice as well. And you mentioned taking five hours to do a client intake. Uh, I can definitely resonate with that. I'm uh, my bike fits are five hours. Five hours is a quick fit for me these days when I'm doing a what I call a full fit, which is really trying to dig in and get to the the undercurrent of what the real problems are, right? And actually make some headway, and then also spend time with client education. By the time you do that you're at five hours in five seconds, right? Yeah. When back in the day, when I wasn't full-time in clinic uh, and was with one foot uh, straddling the clinic world and one foot straddling the bike fitting studio, Hmm. uh, it would be a while before they even got on the bike. Because looking at that, that body that was about to ride, so that the human form about to ride this man-made creation, which of course we have lots of fun on, <laughs> but it's it's totally man-made, non-anatomical move- movements. And we need to, we're not fitting the person to the bike, we're fitting the bike to the person. Mm. So understanding where those persons, where that cyclist limitations were before they even got aboard was a, a huge part of the bike fitting process for me. Mm-hmm. So my bike fit, my bike fits were notoriously long uh, because you know, it, as far as um, the lads were concerned, there was much mirth uh, because I I faffed. But of course, I wasn't faffing at all. I was exploring their bodies to be able to understand that when they boarded the uh, the jig. I couldn't force them into any particular position. I needed to understand why they were adopting that particular position. Yes. Was there anything I could do to help make movement aboard the machine more efficient? Mm. So yeah, that takes time. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'd like to actually cleave into that a little more or dissect that a bit more because I think there's a very fine line between uh, the philosophy or philosophies of bike fitting. And I, I tend to think of everything on a spectrum. It's just how my brain works. So on one end of the spectrum, I would argue we could have a philosophy that is as you stated. We're going to fit the bike to the rider. And on the other hand, we would have the inverse of that, which would be we would fit the rider to the bike. And I think most of the time the extremes don't work out except in extreme conditions or exceptions perhaps. But if we have a rider who is so dysfunctional that they can't really execute or command mastery of, we'll say, the primal movement patterns required for cycling, a basic lunge, a bodyweight lunge, for example, a hip hinge, a proper hip hinge, if their shoulders are their scapulas are glued to the ribcage and the glenohumeral joint is, you know, elevated to the point where it's basically stuck to their bottom of their earlobe, then do we, we set up the bike to allow this horrendously dysfunctional posture? Or do we spend time educating the client about how we want them to grow as an athlete, how we want them to evolve, and then we perhaps place the bike in a position that will gently encourage them in that direction? How do you I like to call that the wedding fit, meaning, or the wedding suit fit. You're buying, you're going to buy a wedding suit today for your wedding in nine months. And it's like, hmm, can I lose two kilos or can I lose four kilos? What size waist do I go with? It's a wonderful analogy. Um, and of course, uh, at the end of the spectrum, uh, you have uh, the, the limitations that the manufacturers lay out. Mm. So, uh, you can't have um, necessarily the bike that will fit that particular rider because it's not a bike. <laughs> it right. doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they would be uh, on a penny farthing. Uh, some some have, they can't hit hinge and they can't reach forward. So they mm -hmm. need to be on a penny farthing, uh, miles up in the sky, completely upright as if they're sat on a, a dining chair mm -hmm. uh, with the, the handlebars brought towards them. So... They're within the confines, of course, of a bike that they're going to be able to access. Otherwise, what's the point? If they want to cycle, we have so many limitations um, with, uh, or not limitations, we have so, um, there are so many excuses out there to not move. <laughs> you don't want to give them another excuse not to move. Mm -hmm. You want to be encouraging movement at every, every corner. Uh, encouraging movement if if they have decided, if the person has decided they want to cycle, we want to embrace that enthusiasm and enable it to happen. Right. And of course, with the with the caveat that, okay, well, we might need to flip the stem quite a bit, and you might be riding a bigger frame than you would expect to be to ride. Forget about the t-shirt size. It, it's not about the t-shirt size. It's about what is going to fit you mm -hmm. and knowing that in due course, as you move more and as you be, as you uh, access more and more movement patterns that you don't currently have through all the work we're going to do together, then the fit will be adjusted as you approach wedding day. Yes. <laughs> and in due course, of course, there might be uh, at the end of that, a, a bike that looks uh reasonable um as a bike and not a, a botch job mm -hmm. um and 
but that person is happy and they've had a journey on their bike with understanding. So it has to look like this because they can't actually make the shapes to get on the bike otherwise. Mm. Uh, so it's, for me, a bike fit is never a, <laughs> we need to lose the wedding analogy now <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, because it's, it's never a one event uh, happening. Uh, it, it is uh, it is progressive. Its bodies need, um, just like cars, they need MOTs. So uh, the body will change as move, more movement occurs, change will occur within the body. And then whatever fit worked before accessed the best movement efficiency that that body could access at the time, uh, that will change. And so the bike needs to change with them. So uh, it, it, there needs to be a continuum uh, for them to continue to be able to enjoy their cycling. That's a really important point. I think in my experience, quite a few clients have a misconception that their bike fitting is an end point. That's a final solution, like the solution of an equation. Like yeah. when you solve the quadratic equation, the answer is nine or 42 or whatever, but that's not bike fitting at all because the body is an organism that's constantly responding to stress or to input to to input yes right yeah whether that's more stretching or less stretching or more hydration or less hydration or a better diet a diet that helps you be healthier versus one that does that helps you be less healthy and creates more inflammation or more challenge or more digestive upset or more arthritic symptoms whatever the outcome is and whether you're riding more or less or whether you're riding and also running or riding and also lifting in the gym or whatever right I think that uh, the premise that we are continually changing is the only thing that can give us hope. Because if we're not continually changing, how do we help people find more, find better, find less pain, find uh, more enjoyment in movement? Mm -hmm. If we don't absolutely hang our hats on the fact that we are constantly changing beings. So if we are constantly changing beings, and we must be because we, we change into a pickle and we can unravel ourselves out of a pickle, <laughs> if, if that is the situation, which it is, then the bike fit cannot be uh, an end game. Uh, it is bike fitting um, mm. uh, and constant, uh, not constant adjustments, but regular adjustments are required to the static um, uh, machine because your body isn't the same as last year. It can't be. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's not it's not possible. When nothing in us is static. We might say maybe in better term is bike fitting, not bike fitted. Yes, yes. Right. It's, a, it's, it's always an ing, isn't it? Yeah. Happily, if if we're still breathing, it's always an ing. Everything is an ing, and we have hope. Uh, we can embrace hope and set the bar high. I'm I'm huge advocate of uh, when I take the intake form for um, an initial assessment. I always ask for their goals. What do they uh, What do they want? And some they have amazing goals, and I think yes, great. Let's work to these amazing goals. I'm so glad that you have really huge goals. And some it's like well, you know. Uh, I just like to understand why I'm still in pain after 25 years. And, you know, if I can, you know, sit in the cinema and watch a movie without pain, then, you know, that would be a bonus. And you think, oh my goodness, set the bar higher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just, 
uh, our bodies are uh, so incredible and, and we still don't have any idea how incredible they are because the Guinness Book of Records keeps being rewritten. Mm-hmm. It's a constant influx changing thing in and of itself. So we need to set the bar high because we can expect more if we ask more is, yes. is how I live my working mm-hmm. life. My It's how I live. So on that topic, uh, the last pod you did with Matt, you were about to embark on a, I believe it was a 400 kilometer race up at Cape Wrath, which is the most Northern point of the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And at the yes. time you were trying to figure out what shoes were going to work because you were expecting a lot of wet rocks and mud and, so I'd love it if you, speaking of amazing things our bodies can do, please tell us how this 400K running race went. Well, it went with COVID. Ah, well, crap. Yeah, it, <laughs> uh, it went. So, so that was that. Oh. Uh, we were due to, um, to launch. So all kit tested, all kit bought, sh- shoes chosen, uh, insane grip. I was so happy. Uh, all training done Mm -hmm. and uh, final big training event completed made us realize that uh, this was going to be even tougher than we thought. Uh, And then, uh, so the event was uh, end of May and of course, 23rd of March, that was it curtains. Yeah. So uh, it didn't, it didn't happen. Uh, And we kept training uh, we we kept we we tried to keep our mojo going, mm-hmm. um, but we tailed off. Uh, we tried uh, because we couldn't train together for ages. And then when we got together again, uh, it was okay. We're going to do this uh, because they're going to reschedule. And then the news came out they would reschedule for the next year. And so we got training again. We started to build uh, again, and and it was cancelled again. Yeah. Uh, and so it was okay. Uh, and we, we sat down and we made a pact. It was a team pact. If it had to be cancelled again, it was the universe telling us that, you know what, <laughs> do, do something else. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, you know, maybe uh, another big adventure for sure, but uh, at a time when there's not this, we don't know what is going to happen because the world isn't settled yet. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, uh, third year, um, it was cancelled. They offered it to a later date. Um, you could either run it over to the following year or you could do it in August. The thing, the thing was, um, they they told us all about the this. We're doing it at the end of May because this is the time for best weather option, uh, best weather potential without the midges. Because later on in the season, uh, you know, it might be better weather, but the midges will be um, incredible and they are known to be uh, incredible. And so it was um, offered for August. And I thought, well, but that's that's the midges time and didn't fancy the midges. So the universe told us to just relax and uh, wait until the world calmed so that we could actually plan for something that had a better chance of happening. Yep. And I know people who did do it, bless their hearts, and midges, uh, midges are their, I think, probably their biggest memory. <laughs> so midges, so that my Americans in the audience understand, they're the British equivalent of a mosquito, basically, right? Yeah, I think that they are, they're worse. Um, 
you know, uh, mosquitoes, there'll be a few mm -hmm. uh, and you can hear them buzzing around. When the midges are bad, every single uh, scrap of open uh, skin is covered. Your skin is covered with the midges. Wow. So it's teeny tiny flies uh -huh. uh, that uh, that you walk or run and there's a cloud of them uh, mm -hmm. around your head. You've got to wear like bee, uh, bee protective hats with veils. Uh, it, it's... So uh, I had a, um, a guy I was working with in clinic, he, he did it, and they would empty thousands and thousands of midges from their packs at the end of um, uh, every day. Wow. Because they just kind of got in wow. uh, through the day and died in the pack, and then you'd empty them out, you know, shoveling them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's serious stuff up in the wilds of Scotland at certain times of year. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay. sorry, not, not much to report on okay. that front. Okay. Uh, we've only had a little adventure in the interim, which was the roller coaster of the um, Helen's making funny roller coastery arm <laughs> movements <laughs> for the, the radio listeners, um, uh, the Jurassic coastline. So it's along the south coast of the UK uh, over three days. So it's an ultra day for three days and camping and uh, it was it was a big adventure because the the first night there was an epic storm and we had to evacuate our tent um, and everybody else had evacuated so all the hotels were full and we got rescued by um, uh, a couple of friends who were also doing it who were in a dorm and we had their top bunks <laughs> so it was it was adventure it was big crazy and uh, I never want to see a step going up to the next cliff face ever again. <laughs> so, yeah, big adventures. Okay. So we'll plan the next one that isn't uh, on the South Coast <laughs> or, or the wilds of Scotland. Yeah. And so, okay, well, just so my audience has a little perspective, maybe you can fill people in on some of the adventures that you um, were successful in conquering midges and COVID notwithstanding, you've done some marathons and some longer runs in Fever and Five Finger shoes. Yeah. So uh, the the running, the distance running really started, uh, well, I was training for my first marathon when I was 17. Um, and when I, when I came on the start line, this is so many decades ago, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it was the inaugural Stratford upon Avon um, marathon. And I rocked up, I was 17, I had my gym knickers on, mm -hmm. um, which are like just big knickers, which are uh, very sensible, very sensible knickers and a t-shirt and some trainers from the market uh, that I bought with my pocket money. And I arrived and that though in those days, you just signed up on the day, uh, you paid your, I don't know, pound or whatever it was, uh, very, very small amounts of money. Um, and, and they said, oh, no, you, you, you're too young, because uh, so, it was two weeks before my 18th birthday. Mm. I said, what do you mean I'm too young? Uh, you've got to be 18. So I could only run the half. Uh, so, <laughs> so I was trained for the full marathon mm -hmm. and actually only ran the half. Um, then I joined the Air Force and then all the running was in great big bobber boots with pine poles on your shoulder or somebody else's kit bag because uh, your, your squadron didn't um, complete until the last person was over the line. So mm -hmm. 
you know, you did everything you could to get the whole team across the line as quickly as you could, including carrying the slower person's kit. Uh, so that was that was all of that. And, and I can't even remember when uh, the, the the longer running uh, started. Oh, it must have been because in when I, I lived in Africa for a while, and there was no running because it was too dangerous. Mm. Um, lived in Saudi Arabia for a while, no running. Uh, um too hot <laughs> and uh you couldn't you weren't allowed outside on uh, on your own as a woman uh, outside the compound on your own and it was you couldn't run around the compound walls that would be crazy mm. uh so it was it must have been when i had the shop so i opened um uh the uh, the first mbt shop in the country in 2004 mm-hmm. uh and it was shortly after that that uh, I met Matt okay. at Olympia at a back show. And we had already uh, brought in uh, toe socks from Finland to the shop. Uh, and so I was wearing toe socks inside my normal shoes. And then I met Matt on the stand in Olympia at the back show. And he had five fingers and it was a match made in heaven. So <laughs> I just slid my socked feet into his shoes. And so MBTs uh, were added to by, I mean, they couldn't be more different. So MBTs, Maasai Barefoot Technology, huge rocker sole shoes that were like two inches thick at their minimum, mm-hmm. uh, growing too bigger at the pivot point, to uh, no more than a, literally a thick skin with a bit of uh, Vibram sole uh, with Matt's uh, Vibram five fingers. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it was, it was really the, the arrival in the shop of, uh, of those, and I still wear them, of course, I love them, uh, five fingers, day one, of uh, the Jurassic Coast Challenge, the three days along the south coast of the UK, I did in Five Fingers. Um, and I'm really glad I swapped. Somebody said that they looked at me and they said, are you are your feet comfortable? Yeah, really comfy, lovely. And they said, it's really stony. Uh, the next two days are really stony. Mm-hmm. And I would have beaten my feet up. So I'm not so purist that I will wear them no matter what. I just love wearing them. Okay. If I know it's like for Cape Brass, I would have set myself up for failure with no grip with my five fingers. And that would be silly. Mm. So when I can, I wear as little as possible. And when I need to wear more, I, I now have more. I found shoes that work. Okay. So uh, okay. We, we just started running further and further in our five fingers. And then it the, really the ultra distance started. I remember the conversation now. Somebody said in the shop, well, how far can you run in them? I thought, I don't know. So uh, <laughs> I gave it a go. I gave my first ultra a go um, and uh, managed two days. So uh, two ultra distances. I think day one was 27 miles and day two was 29 miles. But then I I broke my hip flexor, which was um, a, a cry back to the summer with a, a saddle that was too high. Ah. I I badly strained my hip flexor and it came okay. back to haunt me. Mm. That was before I knew about bike fitting. <laughs> uh, and uh, in fact, that was um, some uh, somebody had helpfully. They be, they were their intentions were good and they had very helpfully said, uh, "Oh, you know, just um, 
uh, just have a little tiny bend uh, in your knee at bottom six o'clock. So that's what I did. Right. <laughs> and, and it was way too high for me, it mm-hmm. turned out, for me. It must mm-hmm. have worked for somebody because this has been cycling law, L-O-R-E, for millennia. Uh, and, um, and interestingly, another digression, but it just reminds me of, uh, I've got a, a lovely chap uh, who I work with. He's a, a mountain biker, huge cyclist. Um, and he just had a little uh, heated discussion with the specialized bike fitting guy uh, because uh, he was talking about the movement of the pelvis mm-hmm. and the bike fitting guy was saying well no no the pelvis mustn't move mm. and uh, we have worked together long enough for him to discover that when his pelvis does move amazing things happen with his cycling hmm. and uh, and he said no 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 uh, that's for gait. Pedaling isn't gait. And it's so interesting, the concept that you, you use your body, your, you, you use your body completely differently depending on what you're doing with it, but it's still the same human body. So yeah. it, its strengths lie in uh, its innate movements. And then you want to block and I think this conversation actually I'm swinging back around to where my thought process was because it was about limitations we we're continually suppressing uh and this is a classic example of suppressing movement that wants to happen Mm. so suppress the movement of the pelvis uh and because this is pedaling not gait uh g-a-i-t right uh, so I think I've lost my way with the story of uh, the running, uh, but it, it just, where are the limitations? So uh, it turned out there aren't any. Um, after the hip flexor got better, I became the first um, iron woman. There aren't iron womans, um, but my friend, Robin, he had got over the Ironman finishing line just well, not just, several hours before me at the same Ironman Mm -hmm. in Five Fingers. And I was the second person in Five Fingers across a line, but the first girl. So, um, yeah, that was my my little um, ice-breaking claim to fame, uh, first barefoot iron womb uh, in little brackets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then it just continued. Lots of Ironmans and um, lots of ultras. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, uh, I'm so glad you went on that little uh, wandering tangent there because that's the kind of the cross-section that's really interesting to me is the discussion around pedaling a bike and gait. And I'll, if I may, I'll tell you kind of my own thoughts and then I'd love for you to, to agree with them, disagree with them, shoot them down, light them in flames, whatever you want to do. But, okay, from my perspective, and a lot of my teachings are framed by Paul Check's thoughts, not all of them certainly, but many of them. And Paul teaches the primal movement patterns. He has six primal movement patterns, right? Yeah. Which just so people know, it's he he teaches that all sports can be reduced to these archetypes of movement. And if you master them, then you'll be better at your sport. Or conversely, if you're disastrous at them, then arguably you ought to regress the exercises you're doing in order to gain better control over these archetypes. So they are a squat, uh, a hip hinge, or a deadlift, you could call it a lunge, a push, a pull, and a twist. And the six of those culminate into gait, walking or running gait. 
And from my own perspective, I ask most of my clients this question and most of the time they get it right. If I ask them what physically get your mind out of the gutter, physically, what are men and women meant to do? What is our primary physical task? And most of them figured out, they say, walk, run. I say, yeah, exactly. You've got to walk to go to that pond to drink water. You've got to walk to go spear that fish. You've got to run to chase that antelope until it tires out and then you can spear it. You've got to walk over to talk to that cute girl, et cetera, et cetera, right? We've got to do all these things. So walking is primal and fundamental. And we know that there's a central pattern generator in the lumbar spine, right around the SI joints, if I'm speaking anatomically correctly, that really dictates a lot of the left-right marching pattern of the gait sequence. And so the way I'm thinking about it is that the gait sequence is really kind of hardwired into the vertebra, the, the or the spinal column, we'll say, not the vertebra, but the into the spinal column. And this is also evidenced by the simple example that if you cut a chicken's head off, it still runs across the yard. It still has that sequence hardwired into it. And humans, as soon as we can walk, we do. I mean, that's what babies are really trying to do. You know, they flop around on the floor and they brachiate and they do all the, the infant development series. And if it's in, if it's allowed to do course, then it, the culmination is walking. That's one of our more important evolutionary steps as humans. So in my mind, this program is so fundamental that I would argue that really cycling is simply a modified form of gait. That's to me, that's what it is. And that's why I think a lot of people get on the bike and they don't really know how they pedal. One of my, I, I do an intake questionnaire that's now up to 61 questions. And one of them is how do you pedal a bike? What's your technique? What are you trying to do? And for me, that's very informative. And sometimes you get these weird answers, right? But sometimes people just say, I don't really know. I guess I just push. And that's indicative of the fact that I, th I think to me, it indicates that the central pattern generator is really perhaps been modified slightly, but fundamentally it's the same action. Now, this is where it gets interesting though, because when you walk and I, and this is, I'm describing this in with awareness of the conversation that I listened to you have with Matt about the textbook conversation or the textbook description of gait which is rear foot, heel strike, midfoot, we'll call it roll through or roll and then push off phase, right? That's sort of our three basic kind of classic textbook descriptions of walking and then also running depending on which textbook you're looking at. And, and there are people who don't run that way. But so if we apply that to cycling, well, if, if we take that my basic supposition that cycling is just modified gait. And we just take that an assumption for a moment and we look at cycling. Well, how is it different? Well, one, there's no, there's no impact. There's no strike. If you go run next to the pool barefoot, don't slip and your heel hits the tile really hard, you're going to feel that shock and you're going to work your way around it naturally. It's going to be an instinctual correction of your gait so that you don't smack your calcaneus on that hard surface. But and so you might modify the gait, but in cycling, there's none of that. In fact, there's this absence of proprioceptive uh, texture or input because we're in this rigid cycling shoe. Let's pretend for the moment that the person's kitted up and they've got proper cycling shoes on, you know, air quotes, proper. And, and so they're in the shoe. There's no, there's no impact. There's no strike. And there's no midfoot really, uh, or, or mid middle of the foot 
roll phase or activation of the plantar fascia. There's nothing to activate that barring, you know, some sort of arch or some sort of G8 footbed or something that gives you that proprioceptive texture or, or surface to push off of. And then, but around the, the somewhere around the forefoot in the, in the push off phase, there is an axle, which is probably somewhat detectable by our nervous system, really because it's a fulcrum, it's a pivot point, but it's not because it's really barking at you. It's not because it's, you're stepping on it and it's a textured surface, unless you're using something that I've been using in my cycling shoes recently, which is a Neboso footbed, if you're familiar with those. I have heard of them. So the idea there being it is a proprioceptive surface and that's something I've been playing with. But so if we look at, if we consider, well, I don't know if this is a question or just sort of a random diatribe of stuff that I'm, I'm sure you'll have thoughts on, but if we think about feeling your way through, I'm loving it. (laughs) This is frequently how it happens for me. So if we think about people's feet being shut down or asleep or less active because they're tromping around in whatever traditional Nikes or trainers or, you know, uh, leather coffins or whatever term you want to use for modern shoes. And then we put them in a cycling shoe. Arguably we've taken a few steps even away from that because there's no, there's nothing to initiate that phase of gait. There's nothing to kind of give the body the recoil, nothing to load the Achilles tendon, nothing to send that signal up to the nervous system that you have contacted the ground. And then there's nothing to kind of have a role a roll through of, and then there's a, there's vague sensation of forefoot pushing. So when I think about it that way, no wonder people get so twisted around the axis of the saddle so frequently in cycling, because you're going to get these mixed signals that are sort of, it's like a, it's like the volume's gone from 10, which would be what you would have walking through the forest barefoot to like a 0.9 at best on the bike. So that as the volume just goes down and down and down, we get less muscle activation we have less awareness of what's happening. It just, it, it dumbs the body. I mean, that rule applies, right? If you don't use it, you'll lose it. Yeah. That was a lot. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm, are, are you ready for me to say? Please. Yeah. So, uh, so many things. I'm, I'm trying to keep them all in my head as you, as you were talking. It was so interesting to listen to you. So number one we have uh, nine different types of uh, skin receptors and some are pressure receptors Mm. and all nine of them are in our feet. Uh, And I think, I I think I'm right in saying, uh, but I, I'm happy to be stood corrected uh, because I think that the only places in our bodies where we have all nine different types of skin receptors are our hands are the soles of our feet and our tongues. So there is plenty of information coming from our feet because there is contact uh, where there is the pedal, that where we, because we have uh, the weight of our leg uh, to a degree, uh, if there's pelvic movement, a little bit of the weight of the body above, uh, where it's only partially weight bearing, admittedly. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're at the saddle, we've got more. It's Yes, it's open chain because uh, the ground is moving away as we're able to push the ground away. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most information in our feet is uh, 
from the midfoot forward. So there's a very good reason we can walk landing and rolling through our heel because there are less <laughs> sensitive skin receptors in the heel mm -hmm. than the forefoot. So um, in embryology, the, the cells that form the tips of our uh, fingers and tips of our toes, the tips of our tongue, tip of our nose, nipples and genitals, they're all from the same stuff so that they are exquisitely sensitive, which is why cyclists get so much pain in their feet. They're not even weight-bearing. But of course, there are hot spots because with a traditionally tight-fitting uh, cycling shoe and uh, uh, a um, clipped-in scenario where the, the shoe is connected to the pedal, always confuse me, called clipless pedals. And you think, yeah. I'm not clipless. I'm totally clipped. Right. Uh, it doesn't. I does not compute. This complete, makes no sense. It's complete completely illogical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a wonderful a little teeny digression. Um, when I taught bike fitting, I would always start uh, the classes with um, no matter what language uh, the students were, I would each person would have a PDF of the uh, the monkey and the ladder story, and I would sit quietly. I say, please just read this and if your English is good and your mates isn't so good because we would have people from all over Europe please translate for them and I won't start teaching until you've all read it are you familiar with the monkey and the bananas and the ladder and the hose story I don't think so please oh uh so um so should we do that now before <laughs> before Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. because because it's probably relevant um so there, there was a group of, this is a true story, and there's a PDF that went around and uh, it was encouraged to be forwarded. I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay, great. Uh, so see if I can describe it accurately. Um, so there's a, a group of, um, and actually, actually, I don't, I even sent it. I'm just going to grab my phone and read it so I don't babble. Okay. Um, I'm known to be a babbler, so I'm just going to be efficient. Uh, so I sent it to this guy who I was talking to earlier um, about the uh, the bike fitter. We'll definitely so, put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, there's a group of scientists and they place five monkeys in a cage and in the middle, a ladder with bananas on the top. Every time a monkey went up the ladder, the scientists soaked the rest of the monkeys with cold water. After a while, every time a monkey went up the ladder, the others beat up the one on the ladder. Mm. After some time, no monkey dare go up the ladder, regardless of the temptation. Scientists then decided to substitute one of the monkeys. The first thing this new monkey did was to go up the ladder. Immediately, the other monkeys beat him up. After several beatings, the new member learned not to climb the ladder even though he never knew why. A second monkey was substituted and the same occurred. The first monkey participated on the beating for the second monkey. Mm -hmm. A third monkey was changed and the same was repeated, the beating. The fourth was substituted and the beating was repeated and finally the fifth monkey was replaced. What was left was a group of five monkeys that even though never had received a cold shower, continued to beat up any monkey who attempted to climb the ladder. Mm -hmm. 
if it was possible to ask the monkeys why they would beat up all those who attempted to go up the ladder, and this is where the story ends, I bet you the answer would be, I don't know. That's how things are done around here. <laughs> so it, it was just because the bike, in my experience, and, and remembering that, of course, I'm female, and on my bike fitting course, I was the only female. Uh, and on Dan Enfield's first road and tri bike fitting course, I was the only and the first female. Mm-hmm. It, it turns out I like being first. I can't win anything, uh, so I do things. I do things first. It's I'm not deliberate. I, I was uh, the, the Five Fingers Iron Man was not deliberate. Those were the only trainers I had. <laughs> I didn't have anything else. Um, but anyway, so with in the bike fitting world, I was uh, I was coming at it from. Um, the ergonomics of the body, from the mechanics of the body, the biomechanics of the body, the shapes that we make, rather than uh, from being a, uh, a cyclist. Mm-hmm. So I was, my voice was very small and not listened to because number one, well, you know, what have you done on a bike? And number two, you're a girl. And, you know, that's how it is, isn't it? So, uh, but I'm XF4, so I'm used to that. Uh, it doesn't bother me at all. And, and it just, it just, uh, it makes you rise to the occasion, frankly, uh, because I had to be better than the guy sat next to me to be considered even remotely in his uh, um, ability range. And that was how it was. And uh, it's not that there is bitterness. It's just a grown-up understanding of uh, the misogyny that people are talking about now. And it's just like, oh, yeah, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, yeah, forever. (laughs) And I don't know if it's ever going to change. Anyway, another story. So uh, in talking to people about bike fitting, saying the things I knew I was about to say, which really went, um, they were sacrilegious in the, cycling world Mm. Uh, I just needed for them to read something that was nothing to do with me that just just perhaps opened their mind to hearing something that they weren't expecting to hear Mm -hmm. so with that uh laying the uh uh the the door oh yes yeah Yeah. for me to plunge forward we go back to the skin receptors in our feet and the advantage of the pedal being uh, under, well, if you can get the cleats as far back as you can, uh, there's arguably a lot more power to be had than if you're pushing with your toes. Right. Uh, but um, uh, again, I have been uh, shouted down so many times there. I stand my ground um, in terms of biomechanics and I can show it. And I, we even tried, uh, I, we're in my clinic here and you, you can't see uh, Doris but I have got the most advanced. So in the in the studio, we have the most advanced bike fitting jig in the world, which is the Guru. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you are being fitted as you move. And in here in the clinic, I, we have the most advanced um, uh, gait analysis technology in the world. And there are only four of them in the world. Mm-hmm. And I have one. Nice. And 
heat. So I, I stand firm in what I know I can measure. And we tried to arrange uh, the um, cameras so that we could film this on um, a bike. And basically, we needed uh, a, uh, a roof that was at least three times taller than what we have. So maybe one day. And Diaz, the company, they have also looked at being able to do that on a bike. And one day in the future, we'll be able to do this, but it's it's in the future. So we, we have the pedal underneath the forefoot, which is where we have uh, a lot of information coming through these skin receptors. And of course, the problem is the, the receptors have got a very specific job. So... Uh, hot and cold, uh, light and vibrational, um, all good. Then we have pressure. Um, but we have, it's not just pressure. It's, is this um, a, a quick pressure or a remaining there pressure? Because the, the sense, the, the skin receptors um, for quick pressure, they'll switch off because the pressure remains there. So then you get a limited amount of information because you're only getting the same information. So it's not that you're not getting the information through from uh, the pedal, uh, cleat, shoe, foot combo. Mm -hmm. It's that the that it doesn't change enough right. where the whole foot is designed to, uh, to know the difference so you go to stand on something and uh, reflexively, and this is crossing in medulla oblongata, uh, right up there in the brain, not, not down uh, in the lumbar area at all. And this is, it's firing, I think it's something like 187 miles an hour. So the brain decides whether or not this is a withdrawal situation right. or whether the foot can load quickly enough for you to then take the step with the other leg over to the side so that you can get your foot off the offending object. Mm -hmm. So our feet are designed to respond to the changing um, event of the roll through the foot, whether you're going heel to toe or toe to heel. Right. And with the, with the, um, the cycling situation, we just pretty much are having the same. Uh, over and over and over again. And, and we get these pressure points and they are being uh, that the, the information is coming through loud and clear on the pressure receptors that register pressure that's still there. Oh, no, it's still there. No, it's still there. It's still there. Get off, get mm -hmm. off, get off, get off. And now you have this hotspot. Uh, so for me, the, the, uh, where it's all gone a little bit wrong is the tight-fitting shoes that squish everybody together with the understanding that we need, if we had a little bit of movement in those bones, you're going to get a little bit with each um, pressure on, pressure off of the, uh, the downward pedal versus the upward pedal. You're going to get um, movement of uh, some of the bones to a degree. And that will quieten the brain because it's at least getting change occurring down at the um, foot, but it needs a broader shoe. Right. 
And of course, all the mountain biking boys, they've got it sorted because they wouldn't dream of wearing uh, the, the kind of road shoes that uh, the roadies and the triathletes use yeah. because the manufacturers have, somebody said somewhere that this was a good idea, make the, the foot really tight and tie it in and uh, yeah, just Lock tight. It, it needs yeah. to be tight yeah. uh, for some reason. And, you know, I... I am forever loosening uh, train people's running shoes. They come into clinic and we're about to um, do their running assessment. And I'm watching them go from barefoot to putting their shoes on. And they are pinning the bones down inside that shoe. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You've just limited. It's just a limiter. Yeah. You've limited the information coming through. You've limited the movement. You've limited any kind of reaction. So um, for some reason, we have these tight shoes, uh, but not all cyclists are the same. <laughs> the mountain bikers uh, seem to be much more sensible. Uh, they, they sit on the saddle less, they confine their bodies less, and they wear bigger shoes. Um, and to go back to your point of uh, the, the mechanics of uh, the cycling being a modified walking gait, Going back to our check training, uh, it, for me, if we just always consider, it's, it's rather than right or wrong, and this is how we do it or not do it, if we're looking for optimizing movement, if we consider our spinal engine, mm -hmm. then any limbs that we have to help us hang on to steer our handlebar, or reach down uh, to organize our pedal, uh, those are a bonus because the spinal engine uh, is uh, from the pelvis up, the movement of the pelvis inextricably linked with the movement of the lumbar spine because L5 is in the pelvis after all. Mm -hmm. And the tissue between the lumbar spine and the pelvis is unbelievably dense. So the pelvis, uh, whilst the, the hip is not the pelvis, uh, the femur has its own movement world and the pelvic bowl has its movement world. So the hip is not the pelvis. And people try and separate the lumbar spine from the pelvis. And I've, I had just have this strong feeling that the density of the tissue and the fact that L5 is in the pelvis, the spine continues through the sacrum, through the coccyx. We have all of that cerebral spinal fluid along the spinal cord, all the way through to the tailbone in the pelvis. They are inseparable. Mm. We are trying to separate the inseparable. So the pelvis on the saddle is the thing that feeds the movement up the chain. Then we do have a modified walking gait. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with you. And the legs make the contact with the pedal. If you have one, I, I have been overtaken. I can't tell you how many times on an Ironman with an amputee uh, with one leg and one arm. Uh, so it, the, the limbs are helpful. But if you've got a pelvis and a spine, uh, you can make good, efficient movement uh, because of the stud. And they, this is, um, uh, now I can't remember his name. Maybe you'll remember his name. I, I only had his book out the other day, Spinal Engine. Oh, um, Yes, there you yeah. go. Thank yeah. you. Um, and 
the the movement of the pelvis, his studies with the um, thalidomide uh, people who helped him yep. with his studies, yep. uh, drive the concept that the you can uh, you can walk with your pelvis and shove the movement up through the spine, um, and legs just give you your stride. Right. You can you can walk without an Achilles tendon. Uh, you 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 don't if your feet are strong enough you can walk without an Achilles tendon. It might not look very pretty, but you can walk. But you can't run without an Achilles tendon. Mm-hmm. So your um, anything downstream from the pelvis in terms of cycling, uh, I feel is uh, a possible addition in movement efficiency, but. Uh, given there are amputees that cycle, not necessary, not strictly necessary. All these limbs are helpful uh, with with the the main event happening, pelvis, spine, axis, up to uh, head, which of course has got the central nervous system in it, helping us out. Okay, so it sounds like we agree on the concept that cycling is a modified walking gait. If the pelvis moves if the pelvis moves so okay perfect that's what i want to unpack because (laughs) what i see and i'd love for you to comment on this and what you see in your bike fitting studio and your bike fitting practice but commonly when people come to me i mean you get the host of problems and the host of things but looking at the bell curve one really common scenario i see is people come in and they're complaining of a sense of asymmetry maybe they're maybe they're on the path of injury, maybe they're not yet to the level of the pain teacher, but they're having symptoms like, I don't know, I just feel twisted around the axis of the saddle. I feel asymmetrical. I feel like one leg is fluid and powerful and the other foot or the other leg or the other knee or the other hip are always not quite right. And they're always sort of battling. They're messing with the cleat. They're fidgeting. They're putting the cleat fore and aft lateral. They're twisting it. They're doing wedges. They're doing footbeds. And when I see these people and I put them on the bike and the system I use, I use a, a trainer on a, a platform that moves at rocks in different planes, right? So hopefully it lets the bike be a little more organic and a little more lifelike in the studio. And I watch them ride and frequently the bike is cocked to one side or the other, more frequently to the left than the right. And a lot of times they're manifesting what I would call broadly right hip drop, which is a term coined by my fit teacher, Steve Hogg. And this is where you can pick your marker and decide how you want to describe it. But if you looked at the, the iliac crest on one side of the pelvis from the posterior view, so riding as though you were on the rider's wheel, looking at them from behind, mm-hmm. and you looked at the two iliac crests, one iliac crest fundamentally would kind of behave as though it was following the foot down mm-hmm. and through the pedal stroke. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as the leg goes forward, uh, we'll say on the right foot, as the right foot goes forward towards three o'clock, the iliac crest kind of drops forward and Mm -hmm. rotates towards the handlebars. And then at the bottom, that iliac crest follows the foot and sort of drops down as though it were dropping towards the bottom bracket, right? Et cetera. And so fundamentally what you have is this sort of cone-shaped pattern of asymmetrical movement, right? Everything sort of fulcrums to the left side. Yeah. And the right side is moving in, it, it, it manifests in different ways. The common denominator for me is that that right hip is lower at some point than the left. Um, Sometimes it manifests in more translational, that is to and from the handlebars and back. Sometimes it's more vertical or 
um, frontal plane movement. So it's dropping down and back. And sometimes it's more of a circle. That's what I see. And, and so for me, what I, okay, there's the why, right? And there's medial rotational instability and why it manifests more on one side than the other. And I think the liver has a big part to play in that role is my feeling from what I've learned and figured out. There's right side bias in a lot of our society. So that tends to um, exacerbate those symptoms and bring them about. More people are right-handed than left-handed, although this is the pelvis, not necessarily uh, reflective. But uh, one simple activity that I point out to people when I'm doing fits that tends to really illuminate their thinking caps is that all automobiles are have a staggered pedal system. It doesn't matter if you're driving an automatic or a clutch, uh, a manual, but you can't, when you sit in the seat of a driver's of a car and you put your feet on the ground, you can't actually put your feet symmetrically from center distance. They're skewed from the gearbox to the right. So that pulls the right iliac crest forward. So how many hours have we all driven cars? Like one of my life goals is to not drive. Actually, I don't really like driving. So I, I try not to drive as much as possible. However, I've driven a lot of miles in my life in cars. And so every minute of that driving is put in that position passively. Anyway, so bits and pieces that, that put us into that position potentially, but this whole watching this for the last, uh, whatever year it is, 11 years of bike fitting, 10 years of bike fitting, however long I've been doing it. The conclusion I come to is, well, movement of the pelvis is bad. And that goes directly against Kravetsky's formula. But when I see movement in the pelvis, it's usually associated or coupled with dysfunction, pain, IT band syndrome, lower back pains, pain under the scapular, subscapularis, chronic pain, uh, knee pain, et cetera. And a lot of times I have people come in and see me and they're on the verge of quitting the sport and they don't understand why they've been to multiple bike fits and, you know, they do the retool and, or whatever, not to beat up on retool specifically, but I will for a minute, you know, and all their knee angles look right or whatever. And so they adjusted the saddle and that, why didn't that fix it? Nobody knows because it's the, this is the first grade way to look at what is, you know, a lifetime of study to figure this out. And I'm somewhere in the middle of that giant ball of wax. I'm not saying I have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, just on the path. I'm just, pil pil I'm on the pilgrimage, <laughs> but so that, that broadly led me to think like, okay, pelvic movement is bad because when I have riders who come in who have zero complaints frequently, not always, but frequently their pelvis is pretty darn dead quiet when viewed at the PSIS. That's how I would define that. It's not rotating in the frontal plane. It's not moving in the, uh, sorry, frontal plane or transverse plane. Really. It's pretty stationary on the saddle, which is not to say they don't have movement in the anominate, right? Because, so in any case, um, invisible at least, <laughs> right, right. And maybe this is very subtle movement and for sure it is. And, and look, I mean, this is what differentiates a squat from a lunge. A lunge is of course a unilateral activity. And I also ask people how much cycling is bilateral and it takes them a minute and usually they get it, but not always no cycling. Cycling is 0% bilateral, none, zero. So am I saying never squat in the gym to prepare for cycling? No, definitely not. Some of strength and conditioning should be to offset the compensations that we develop in cycling. 
However, if you want to be sports specific, you have to master what are the two primal movement patterns we have to master for cycling. First, it's a hip hinge. It's a static hip hinge. And secondly, it's a lunge. And when you lunge, as soon as you lunge, you put a rotational twisting force, an oblique force into the pelvis by definition, right? So this is where, this is the biggest single challenge for me that I see in, in, in bike fitting to solve is how do we, how do we get people to stop dropping the hip and asymmetrically making power? Okay, so uh, I'm gonna see if I can try and make sense here without going off on tangents. In my experience, if they have had no pain in back, lower back, but maybe they've got, uh, you know, maybe they're not comfortable in their wrists, maybe they've got too much pressure on their wrists. In my experience, things that don't move don't hurt. Mm. And things that move a lot uh, tend to be poked, prodded, stretched, um, spiky balled, needled, you name it. Uh, and, And it's the bit that's working the hardest. So when you talk, when I see, uh, very quiet pelvises, internally, I cry a little bit. Mm. And I think, oh, and I'm going to tell you a little story about Tour de France in a moment, but I'll I'll just say that one. I cry a little bit because I think, oh my God, those legs are working so hard. Mm. Their movement efficiency is, in my experience, less, and we do bike fitting with um, an ergometer, uh, and we, yes, it's, it's perceived effort, but it's clear. So they think that you have reduced the resistance as soon as we do something with them, encouraging them to say, move their pelvis as a, for instance. And, uh, and of course you haven't touched anything. They've just got access to more power. Mm. Uh, and I actually, when I fitted, I won't name drop, but I fitted uh, an ex Tour de France. He would have been a winner only he got done for drugs at the very last moment. And he he bemoaned the fact that if he had known what he discovered about his moving body during his um, bike fitting process, uh, he felt he wouldn't have needed to retire when he did. So we simply seek to optimize the movement of the human body aboard this uh intriguing and wonderful gadget called a bike which is completely man-made um to find a way to operate best upon it so when pelvises are quiet then the only thing that's dropping down onto that pedal is the leg so you are only pushing with the leg and nothing Nothing can be compartmentalized. When bike fitting, I can adjust somebody's breathing ability by the position of their thumb in tri position in aero. Their thumb will dictate how their scap lies on uh, the rib cage and either will assist their breathing or limit their breathing. Nothing can be separated. So everything works with everything else. And it's a mathematical equation. If one thing doesn't move, something else is gonna have to move more to affect the same. Mm. 
something else is going to have to work harder to affect the same. So if we're talking about power to the pedal, if you just use your leg, your, your leg is going to have to work harder than if your, pel your pelvis works with your leg, your lower back moves with your pelvis with your leg, your spine moves with your pelvis with your leg, your shoulder girdle moves with your pelvis and your spine and your leg. Now you have more power to the pedal and it's measurable. Okay. In my experience and when we see asymmetrical movement, then one area moves less than the other. And the other area, because you're on a symmetrical machine, it's revealing your asymmetry. Mm -hmm. That asymmetry will be visible in gait. It's just the bike is symmetrical and it highlights anything that is asymmetrical about mm -hmm. you. You bring your asymmetries to a symmetrical machine powered by you and it will shine a light on everything about you that is a little bit tricky. Now, this isn't a negative. This is a wonderful journey of discovery of accessing better movement all around, no matter what, no matter what movement, just exactly what Paul Check says. Mm -hmm. You access um, a better ability to all the primal movement patterns, then no matter what you do, uh, you will be better at it because your body is freer to move. So with what you're describing, that cone, you, you described it so eloquently, I could clearly see the cone. I could visualize it in front of me. I've, I've seen it, of course, but you, you just described it so well. You have this quiet side of the body and the busy side. And of course, the pedal circle is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's just the uh, the right pedal circle is bigger because it seems to be involving the hip as well with the pelvis, and the left is quieter because basically it's, it's squished down. It's on the um, the less free end of the seesaw. So, uh, and in my mind, this is what I see. Uh, people stuck in. So you've either got the person who never leaves midline who can sit on a saddle completely symmetrically and cycling lends itself to them. So they love cycling because they don't really have the ability to cross the midline and have contralateral movement. They love cycling because there's no limit in their movement pattern. It is a machine made for them. Mm. Running and walking are tricky because they don't have the contralateral movement and they can just sit like a sack of spuds on that saddle, <laughs> not move. They might get a few pressure points, but they thrive in the fact that they finally found something that they can do well. Right. Add into that right. um, a, a movement development of a slouch type effect and you can make that beautiful banana on the bike mm -hmm. not move just get really strong legs be quad dominant yep. it's all good yep then you get the um the spirals so in my uh movement world i'm always figuring out with the help of doris the most advanced skate analysis in the world and i i look at the way the person is moving in static, walking, running, skipping, galloping, the whole gamut tells me where their restrictions are. And 
Then, uh, Doris, you will give me three-dimensional movement of the vertebra and the pelvis, along with the force plate measurements, will, will let me know if the input that I provide is sending that person in the right direction. And what I see continually, and the, my, my feeling is that the problem in the movement industry is the wording, the labeling, people are, it's common people saying that it's the same, um, uh, different words for exactly the same thing. We're all saying the same thing, but we're using different words, which is very confusing for everybody. Mm-hmm. And counter-rotation is one of those very confusing words because there is no counter-rotation. Uh, we, and if I could just, if my mission in life is to talk about movement development and to eliminate the word counter-rotation, then I'll I'll happily spend the rest of my life doing it. (laughs) We spiral. We do not counter-rotate. We have contralateral limb movement Mm -hmm. for sure, but we do not counter-rotate. So, If all the listeners are sitting in their chairs, maybe they're walking, uh, listening to you. uh, Oh, that's my dog. Hang on a minute. I've just got to pull the blind down because (laughs) she can see the cat. Uh, So the uh, the contralateral movement um, informs us that uh, crossing the corpus callosum, crossing the ditch between the two hemispheres in the brain can happen with fluidity, Um, and um, uh, uh, fast muscle sequencing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are no mistakes. It is our domain. It gives us our transverse plane rotational movement, which is our humanness. Uh, No other mammal has it. We're the only one. So we can swizzle in the field of gravity without having to bounce around up and down against it. So this is our uniqueness but we get into a pickle with it because of everything you mentioned, all of the environmental factors. uh, And that's, you talked about that only as an adult. You then factor in what happens before we're an adult and kids are forced to sit still on a chair. So all squatting possibilities start to disappear down the plug hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the, um, uh, Things are um, used to distract the infant to keep them happy uh, and quiet. Um, And they might be just to the right or just to the left. Nobody, no, I'm not, I shouldn't say nobody. The thought of um, acquiring uh, movement, uh, auditory input, visual input to both sides equally so that the growing little tiny person can organize this crossing of this ditch between the two hemispheres Mm -hmm. to gift us our contralateral limb movement uh, with never without a mistake. So no ipsy, no tick-tocking soldiers, Um, That is, it's our domain. And what we see are people stuck in spirals. So what you described was a left spiral. So if you, if as I'm going to stand up so that I can uh, describe it clearly. Okay. If, so I've got my uh, chest facing 12 o'clock. I'm going to turn my chest, turn my torso. I'm turning, 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 turning. 
until I can't turn anymore without losing contact with my right foot. Mm -hmm. So then if I bring myself to face you again, keeping that same shape, yep. my torso faces 12 o'clock, but now my pubic bone is facing two o'clock. Mm -hmm. So I've got uh, maybe, maybe my torso is facing 11 o'clock and my pubic bone is facing one o'clock. So I have what looks like a left rotation of the torso and a right rotation of the pelvis. But if we continue to use the words counter rotation, the torso going one way, the pelvis going the other way, and try to fix things with a counter rotation, a, a twist somewhere, instead of it being a spiral driven by the upper body and the lower body in unison, the legs driving the pelvic girdle, the arms driving the shoulder girdle. We are a spiral staircase, not a, uh, we're a spiral staircase wrung out towel, not uh, above the belly button that's pointing that way, below the belly button that's pointing that way. Right, right. It may be semantics, but in my experience, once again, it is in the movement world, people will try to reorganize that with a, uh, a rotation of the pelvis this way, a rotation of the torso that way, instead of joining it together and making a spiral. Mm -hmm. It's just a spiral. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we get into the realms of spirals, exciting things start to happen. So when you've got somebody in a left spiral, uh, they will stand with... Um, uh, ostensibly, their body looks as if it's pointing straight ahead, but my machine will tell me that the vertebra are actually rotated right. Maybe an arm position might give the game away, sometimes not, because the arm position uh, might counter the fact that the, um, the vertebra are pointing to the left. Mm -hmm. uh, and the pelvis uh, rotated to right in this static spiral, and then we watch them move. And the, the movement leans itself because it's a left spiral. It leans itself to the left. Now we see it a lot. You would think it would be to the right, but if we lean to the left, we present right eye, right ear, mm -hmm. right hand, that we present dominance. Um, we are propelling with our dominant leg. So for me, it makes complete sense that we're seeing a lot of left spirals. And on the bike, this was present itself as uh, lots of pressure on the left hand wrist, uh, quiet, you might have compression on the left hip, um, but you have more movement on the right making this cone. Mm -hmm. uh, and depending on their ergonomics, the, the, everything that's happened to them before they got on the bike, um, all their movement development pieces, I call them pieces of Lego, uh, they might have um, right hip pain, right lower back pain because it's working so hard. Equally, they might have left knee pain yeah. because they are pedaling from such a disadvantage that the right knee is free. The right knee is happy as Larry because it has movement at both ends. It has movement at the foot end and at the hip end. So whilst the lower back might get a bit upset because it's doing more work, the left knee 
is in a much more disadvantaged position because it's stuck at the foot end and it's stuck at the hip end. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's, uh, is this, is this person on axis in the sagittal plane in a left spiral? So the pelvis is underneath the rib cage, in which case we simply need to show him the right spiral or is it off axis? In which case you've got to organize the messy thing that they're in before you can go ahead and give it something completely different. Right. So with cyclists, again, a forward pelvis, when somebody is standing and uh, so it's the model uh, um, position because the models have lean bellies and, and so they can stand with their forward pelvis uh, and it's, you know, it looks good. This yeah. is the bouncer uh, position with the arms folded. It's also quite martial arty with the pelvis forward. And they get a lot of back pain because literally the weight of their torso is an overhanging cliff. So they love cycling because suddenly they are taking their torso ahead of the game, supporting the weight of their lower back with their arms. And cycling becomes their go-to because it solves the tricky position of their pelvis in relation to the ribcage in the side view. So you can't go ahead and give them a right spiral when the left spiral is a mess because the pelvis actually isn't where it should be. So it's organizing, you've got to organize the mess before you find, before you've got a hope of, giving somebody something that they haven't got yet yeah. or offering movement so that their their brain which is much more intelligent than us we because we until we make a robot that moves like us we don't know it all we just don't know right and as donald rumsfeld said and i know it sounded i thought it was genius some people he got poked fun at horribly but i thought it was genius because we don't even know what we don't know yet <laughs> right and that's a truism So when we go around, you know, dictating this, that, and the other and telling people that we know all of, you know, what we we might know, and there are uh, teachers at medical school who, and GPs have told me this, they were taught, well, yeah, hmm, uh, well, we know that about 50% of what we teach is true. We're just not quite sure which 50% it is. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so you think, okay, so if we all go in towards this movement experience with curiosity, a sense of adventure, and not accepting the things as they have been just because they have always been like that, Mm. then together we might explore and discover all sorts of exciting new stuff and be able to understand it more and more. Mm -hmm. But, But, and, it's with this huge caveat that we don't understand it well enough to make a robot do it. So the Grandmaster of Chess helped them make um, a a program, a chess program, and the computer can beat the Grandmaster of Chess. Mm -hmm. But the human who does all the movement cannot make a computer that moves like a human because we don't understand it all yet, which is exciting because there's so much more to learn. Yeah, there is so much more to learn. So, okay. Thank you for that. That was really interesting. So it sounds like if you had someone come in with what you're terming, it sounds like you're saying uh, my, my terminology that I'm using is right hip drop. Your terminology would be a left spiral, correct? 
or would it? Yes, the, because in that twist, in that spiral uh, on the bike, if you take that spiral on the bike, so you can imagine that the right shoulder is going to be slightly further forward mm-hmm. in the way our body is made. If on a bike, if the right shoulder is forward, you're actually opening out that lateral line mm-hmm. and the right hip will drop. That's that's how that's called a lateral flexion of the spine. This is type yeah. Yeah. Uh, type two spine mechanics. Mm-hmm. So the, the right arm will be slightly further forward, which means the left arm will be slightly further back. And, and we have the left lateral flexion. Yeah. Well, the left lateral flexion couples with a left hike. And if the left is hiking, the right is dropping. Yeah. And it can because the saddle is, is you know, unless it's a, an ancient saddle, which is incredibly broad, it, 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 the, the hip can drop because can it can. Right. Okay, it's okay. not a chair. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. So we're not, to, we're not saying different things at all. It's just, I feel as if, if we can all come together and describe things and have um, a common usage of words, then we might actually find solutions for the problem quicker. Because if it's a hip drop, do we hike it? Okay, well, but, right. but why is it dropping? So that's the important part is what's the methodology? Like, okay, we can call it a bluebird Sunday if we want to, but we have this common language. So th- what it sounds like what you're saying is your method would be fundamentally first to orient the pelvis under the rib cage. And then secondarily to find a way to loosen the spiral on the left side to allow a more, uh, equal amount of movement between left and right. Is that, is that, it need, yeah, it needs to be out? go global zoom out. Yes. Yeah. You go global. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, I feel if we're taking the whole human and popping it on the bike, everything affects everything else. So if there's a hip yeah. drop, then we can expect a shoulder hike. If there isn't, then this is, then it's more of a problem. Yeah, it's more if, of layers. If, yeah, if it's yeah. harmonious mm-hmm. in the joint mechanics organization, then at least it's harmonious mm-hmm. and, and we can, uh, we can figure out how to just, you know, tidy it up a little bit in order to be able to then go in the opposite direction. But we need to go global and not poke at the offending area of movement um, that, you know, the left hike or the right drop or the or the left knee adduction. Yeah. yeah. Uh, instead, look at the entire picture from this person standing still, from this person walking away from you and toward you and across you, then they get on the bike. Where do you see the movement patterns that they are holding in their frame and they're carrying with them, through with them in the walking gait? Because everything should change, right? Mm. When we're moving, everything should change. So the things that stay the same, you will see on the bike. Mm -hmm. They are holding that skeleton. They can't do anything else. Because it would have changed. Yeah, yeah. It would have changed in gait. Right. If it could, it would have changed in gait. So so then you put that human onto a symmetrical machine. And those juicy little nuggets of observation that you have just had given to you will show themselves up on the bike because the bike is symmetrical. Yes. And Ah. then you can think, ah, okay, this this is, um, he has a, He's got a head tilt. 
And that's going to drag the body around a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's going to squish one side down. It's going to open one side up. Where is the pain? Is the pain the squish side? Mm. Or is the pain the freely moving side, ergo working side? Overworking to stabilize. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The people, a great big message that I consistently, the penny drops, I I can see the penny dropping. Mm. Oh, so... And it's, they, they have to double take several times because it's such an enormous piece of jigsaw puzzle that falls into place finally, mm-hmm. that all the pushing, pulling, massaging, poking, needling, you name it, that was just, and it never worked. It gave relief. So, so they're handy. pulling something yeah. and it gave relief, but it's locked long because their body's over on the other side. Mm-hmm. So that area is long. It feels tight because it's like a long piece of elastic stretched to its limits. Right. And it's locked tight and it's working. And so what it actually needs is a holiday. Yeah. uh, Not a poking and a prodding and for the other side to actually wake up. And that moment of understanding and realization is, uh, it brings me joy because Mm -hmm. I know that that body's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. It's going to be able to look after itself because they're just going to they're going to do the work to offload that area. Yeah. And then they go back to enjoying their movement. Yes. So, okay, I've got to then pull another uh, beautiful quote from your podcast with uh, on Just Fly Sports. And you said just you just alluded to it here when you put someone on the bike and you see all these things and then you give them the gift of notice. Oh, oh, that is nice, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? I love that. That was great. So that's, I mean, as coaches, as fitters, as anyone who's practicing, who's helping other people improve their practice as an athlete, that's probably the single biggest thing you could give them, right? Yeah. And because all they could notice before was the pain. Mm. So they they couldn't notice the fact that actually that was the doing side. Right, right. Or it was the squished side. It had no space. They, they couldn't notice mm-hmm. because they're, they're too in their body. And Mr. Google doesn't explain this. No. Mr. Google just, you know, tells you to poke and prod it and stretch it and needle it and whatever else it. Yep. Strengthen yep. it. Oh, that's the other one. Strengthen, Strengthen it. Yes. It's already doing an insane amount of work. Mm-hmm. I always uh, my I always say to the people I work with, and they they realize for themselves they are much stronger than they realize. Mm-hmm. Everybody walking in through my doors is stronger than they realize mm-hmm. because of what their body is having to put up with, you know, with a mm-hmm. forward head to mm-hmm. the degree that now once one thing, this head that was when it's perched on top of your head beautifully is what five kilos. And then when the, the angle uh, of trajectory of the C-spine is 60 kilos, uh, 60 degrees, it's, I think the stats are 27.3 kilos. Crazy how fast it adds up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unmeasurable when your hip hinge is unmeasurable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's magical when people uh, have the penny dropping moment. Hey everybody, this is Joel Harris, the editor, and I'm here to give you a quick update on the rest of this episode as Colby is on his way back from Europe as we speak, flying somewhere over Newark, I believe. Uh, Anyway, this episode ended up being rather long at about three hours recording time, so I'm making the executive decision 
to break this up into two episodes. This one, which was part one, and part two, which will be released in two to three days' time, Saturday the 18th or Sunday the 19th. And at that time, Colby will be back to uh, give you a quick update and an intro into episode two. So until that point, stay tuned and gratitude. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of Cycling in Alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse because if we can't have a discourse as adults then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society even if we disagree we ought to be able to in most cases shake hands and walk away because after all this is sport we're talking about and while sport is training for life It's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.